Well, let's, uh, let's open our uh, worship time with some prayer. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful to be in this place this morning. We are thankful for a time of fellowship, good music, kolaches and donuts, coffee. I'm thankful that we can come together into one service, which has been such a long time. I know many of us have not seen each other in a while, and, and to be able to gather into this place uh, both guests and regular attenders and members. Uh, I just feel the love in this room, and so we're thankful. And we pray that more than just a social hour, that this would be a place where you are welcome, where you are glorified, where you are honored in all that we say and that we do, because really, we're here for you. Uh, not that you need us, you don't need anything from us, but you do long to hear uh, from us. You long to be in relationship with us. And so coming into this place, we see the relationships we have with each other, and then it's reminding us of our relationship with you and how we need to turn our gaze to you all week long. And so may we be strengthened in this worship hour uh, to do that task. God, I uh, realize that all of us in this room you know, we talked about sin this morning in, in uh, Sunday school and how the word for sin is like an archer who doesn't quite hit the bullseye. And none of us have hit the bullseye this week. We have been off target. We have uh, missed it completely sometimes, shot it into the air, shot it into the ground. And we just want to be open and honest about that and just confess to you in our hearts this morning and the ways in which we've failed you. Uh, failed to be in perfect relationship with you and relationship with each other, uh, even with creation itself. We ask for your forgiveness this morning. We ask for a new start, a second chance. And we thank you that you promise uh, to give us that fresh start each and every time we come to you, that your grace is never exhausted. Thank you so much for that. Lord, we also come to this room perhaps with some heavy burdens on our hearts this morning as we think about friends and loved ones, as we read the news and hear about terrible shootings and catastrophes kind of all over the place. Maybe that's weighing on us this morning. And so we're going we're gonna to call these out to you. We're going to do this out loud because it's just a way of getting it out into the open. And we pray that you would receive these. And that you would give us in exchange peace and comfort knowing that you are on the job. That even as we sit here and worship you, that you are the ultimate multitasker. <laughs> and that you are working toward the good of all people and all things at all times, even when we are asleep. So Lord, hear now our prayer. Blake Jameson. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Kyle Shaver. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. 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 Jennifer Lucas. 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Mike and Jerry Hodson. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. God, we give you these and, and no doubt others that uh, words haven't been formed here this morning, but we know that you search our hearts, that you know the things that are troubling us. We give this all to you now. We thank you. We praise you. We long to see and hear from you today. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as these scriptures are read and a word is proclaimed, we may receive with joy that which you say to us today. Amen and amen. Continuing on in the narrative lectionary, we are done with Matthew. We are done with the Gospel of Matthew. We now move into Acts. Let's see how the apostles navigated the waters of carrying on the ministry of Jesus. We are in Acts chapter 10. Verses 1 through 17 and 34 and 35. Listen now for a word from the Lord. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven open and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. A word from God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So uh, we've got a, a kind of a, a, 
a bit of a heavy topic this morning, and that is the topic of crisis of faith. Have you ever heard of that, uh, that term before, a crisis of faith? I, I looked it up on the internet. The internet says, a crisis of faith is a deep and painful questioning, loss or transformation of belief. Uh, it is a, a season of life in which you wrestle with what you have believed to be true, with what you are coming to suspect might actually be true. Okay? That's what a crisis of faith is. Now, St. John of the Cross, one of the early church fathers, called it the dark night of the soul. Uh, this, one of these moments in which you feel like you are in complete darkness. Uh, in seminary, we called it deconstruction, which was hopefully followed by reconstruction. Whatever you call it. It can be scary, it can be overwhelming, it can be incredibly painful. Uh, in seminary, I said over and over that I felt like the rug was being pulled out from under me. Like all the years that I had been standing on what I thought was solid ground, all of a sudden now the ground is shifting and I don't know what to do. Now if you Google crisis of faith, what you're going to get is a bunch of websites that are essentially are saying doubt is the enemy of faith or the devil is working hard to get you to leave your faith. Uh, I came across one that was like 10 tips on overcoming your crisis of faith. Overwhelmingly, the, the websites that I saw, a crisis of faith was a bad thing and you need, you need to get through it as quickly as possible. But I want to propose to you this morning that right here in the biblical witness, very early on in the disciples' ministry and trying to navigate this, this thing that had been handed to them from Jesus, we see wrestling with one's belief as coming from none other than God. And it was a natural and necessary process for those who claim to follow Jesus. Now last week we heard the Great Commission. Jesus met with the disciples in the Gospel of Matthew on a mount in Galilee. And he gave them the command to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them everything that Jesus had taught them, and to remember that he would be with them always. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what happens, but in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus ascends into heaven, and then it's just like that. Okay, the kingdom is yours, now go, right? And, and you, had some, you had three years of on-the-job training, but now you've got the keys in hand, and it's time to go. And the first apostles, which are now called apostles, which means sent ones, instead of, they were still disciples, still following Jesus, but now they've been sent out. They've got to figure out what does it mean to be an ambassador for Jesus, to represent Jesus in the world. And very quickly, not, not too long into uh, this process, Peter, who you know is a devout Jew, he has this vision, or what, what uh, Luke tells us in Acts was a trance. Now, it could be that this was brought on by his hunger. We know he was very hungry and food was being prepared. Sometimes when you're that hungry... Uh, you start hallucinating. Maybe he was having an hallucination. I don't know. But in this trance vision that he had, he sees this 
this sheet, or what we, we found out actually was like the sail of a ship, this pretty large sheet, and it's being let down from heaven on all four corners, and it's filled with all the wrong kinds of animals, right? And then Peter hears this voice, rise up and kill and eat. Now this goes against everything that Peter has believed and followed his entire life. And so his reaction is not surprising. He says, by no means, Lord, I have never touched or eaten anything that I'm not supposed to. Anything that is profane, anything that is unclean, Peter knows what the Bible teaches about this. He knows right from wrong. He knows that the Jewish dietary laws have been followed for thousands and thousands of years, and yet God is asking him to violate his faith. Luke tells us that he is greatly puzzled about the whole thing. I think puzzled is probably too mild of a word. I looked it up in Greek. Puzzled means to have a distressing inner conflict, to literally feel like you've been backed into a corner or against a wall. Peter, in the midst of this vision and afterwards, is wrestling with what generations of his people have believed to be true, what he firmly believes to be true with what God has just commanded him. Wow. That's a crisis of faith. You ever felt anything like that? A time in which something you firmly believed in began to shift. And I don't know what brought it on, but something moves in your thinking about some of these deep issues, these deep ideas, and you find that you are unsettled on unsettled ground. Is this the devil in disguise? Is this a test from God? Is this God changing the rules? Peter is greatly conflicted and tormented. No doubt you and I would be too. What I have come to believe, partly from this story, but mostly from my own experience in life, is that our early faith, and I, and I preface this, early faith, when you first come to the faith, your faith at that point is something that has been uh, constructed and handed to you by others, right? So growing up in the Baptist church, all that I knew was the Baptist understanding of faith and what had been handed to me. I can remember as a kid, very early on, some of the uh, illustrations that the pastors would do up on stage and how that framed my concept of salvation and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. What I didn't realize is that the faith that was being given to me was probably given to them, right? Many of us walk around with uh, narratives that have been handed to us by somebody else. But when you begin to grow in faith or mature in the faith, I believe at some point you have to begin to possess your own faith. Now, we're doing confirmation classes right now. And part of 
confirmation is exploring some of these topics. Now, uh, the temptation there is just to kind of tell the confirmands this is how it is. This is what faith means and, and just give them the stuff. But part of what I want to do as a pastor is help kind of open the doors to some of this stuff because I want confirmants to come out of confirmation possessing their own faith and saying, this is what I believe to be true. Deciding what you believe is part of maturing in the faith. But that means that you have to allow the death of some of your inherited beliefs. Right? If you've inherited beliefs, those things have to die if you're going to move into a new space. And this can be an awful thing. Uh, this can be very scary, overwhelming, confusing, puzzling, feeling like you've been backed against a wall, especially when the Bible lays out what you believe is a clear mandate. The way that you have been reading the Bible is pretty clear to you, and now all of a sudden something is challenging that. Or when your new beliefs take you outside of the beliefs of your inner circle, right? If your family and your friends and your pastors believe one thing and you find yourself shifting in that, now all of a sudden you are outside of that comfort zone. <laughs> Folks, when this happens, I don't know that, I mean, it could be a test from the devil. It, it could be a test from God. It, it could be God changing the rules, but I don't think so. Not when this happens as a natural part of maturing in the faith. I think this is God, like we see in this story of Peter. This is God opening the heart and mind, revealing Himself to us in a more intimate way. Helping us shift subtly, what sometimes doesn't feel like a subtle shift, but but subtly shifting from what we thought we knew to what we actually need to know. Moving from fear to love, as 1 John would say. We can, we can be in this place of fear, and God wants to move us into love and more perfect faith. Or what Paul would say, uh, moving from following the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. Now, Peter, as the story unfolded, and we didn't read all of it, but, but Peter found out that this vision was actually a metaphor for something else. Specifically, the vision that he saw was about the acceptance of non-circumcised people into the fold of God. And see, this was just as problematic as eating unclean foods. We talk about kosher and non-kosher foods that Jews may eat, eating non-kosher foods. Like, that's a standard in, in the belief system. Well, who is allowed into the people of God is also another set standard. And now all of a sudden, non-circumcised people, or Gentiles as they were called, could be allowed into the people of God. Peter is beginning to understand this as he listens to the testimony of Cornelius the Roman Gentile soldier. He begins to put it all together. In verse 28, he says, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. The Bible's clear. We know what it says. I can't go into your home. I can't associate with you. I can't be with you. You are unclean people. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane 
or unclean. By the end of their conversation, he's got it. Verse 34, now I truly understand. Ah, I've got it. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Amen, Peter. You got it. You got it. The inner conflict that Peter was feeling as he was puzzled on that roof, feeling backed against a wall, he's resolved this within himself, at least for the time being. Now, Paul would tell us that Peter actually kind of still wrestled with this moving forward. But for now, it's been resolved within himself. But this is just the beginning because now... Peter's got to learn how to operate in the world as an ambassador for Jesus with this new belief that is radically different than something he always believed his whole life growing up. He's got to get over his deeply ingrained prejudices against Gentiles. They're in there. They're built into there. He was raised with a way of thinking and looking at Gentiles. And now he's got to learn how to bypass that stuff moving forward as Jesus calls him to witness to the Gentiles. Not only that, but now, if we kept reading the story, we would find out that Peter gets summoned to Jerusalem to explain himself. Now he's got to go to his brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith and tell them that his beliefs have changed, and not only that, their beliefs need to change too. Whew. How do you think that went over? That's a tough place to be. That is a tough place to be. Dr. Pete Enns is uh, he's a professor and a podcaster. Uh, I think he's entertaining. He's kind of snarky at times. He wrote this book, one of his first books that he wrote. It's called The Sin of Certainty, Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Our Correct Belief. He says in, in this book, It's so easy to slip into right-thinking mode that we have arrived at full faith. We know what church God goes to, what Bible translation God prefers, how God votes, what movies God watches, and what books God reads. We know the kinds of people God approves of. God has winners and losers, and we are the winners, the true insiders. God likes all the things we like. We speak for God and think nothing of it. God becomes the face in the mirror. But by His mercy, God doesn't leave us there. <laughs> you see, I firmly believe that if you commit to following Jesus, that sooner or later, God will begin to smash and shatter your mirrors. These are images of God that we didn't know that we had, but they were false and they were comfortable for us. And God begins to smash those images that we see in the mirror. And when that happens, you begin to find that God is not like you thought God was. And you have a choice. You have a choice when that happens. Now, many people, when they start to experience this dark night of the soul, this crisis of the faith, they just throw their hands up and they walk away from the faith altogether. It's sad when that happens. I know of people in seminary that just quit and said, 
I don't even know what to do with this. But maybe even a, a, a sadder outcome is whenever people kind of cling to their mirror images and begin to vigorously defend them, right? God has begun to slip in a notion that maybe I'm not right here, but I'm just going to double down and I'm going to make sure that nobody sees this or uncovers this or hears this because choice number one could happen. They could just walk away from the faith. So I'm just going to defend it with all that I have. But choice number three is actually the preferred one. It's when you just kind of let go and see where God takes you even if nobody else follows you, right? This is the choice that Peter made. Do you realize, because Peter made this choice, wrestled with this inner feeling of conflict and came through on the other side and said, I now believe this, even if my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem don't follow me, this is the direction I'm going. And because of that, are in this room too. We're all Gentiles, folks. It's because Peter had a shift in belief. Did I just lose my mic? You did. I'll use my preacher voice. (laughs) It's because Peter embraced the shift in belief that was greatly troubling for him that we are here today. Praise God. Praise God. So here's what I want to know from you today. When and where and how has your walk with Jesus led you to a crisis of faith? Maybe you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, I've never had that before. I'm pretty comfortable with my faith and with where things are. If that's true... What could lead you into a crisis of faith? If a big sheet dropped out of the sky today and was filled with something, something that you didn't want to engage with or partake of or associate with, and the voice of God said, shift your thinking on this, what would be in your sheet? Right? Can you imagine in your head the inner conflict that you might feel as you imagine that? This is what Peter felt. Whatever that <laughs> might be, whatever you experience as you follow Jesus and you begin to wrestle with some of these things, here's the thing to look for. Jesus said, love for God and love for neighbor wraps up the whole Old Testament. If it leads you into one of those two places or both at the same time, I believe it's the right place to go. And for Peter in this moment, including the non-circumcised Gentiles into the fold, was an opening, a widening of the circle, an increase of love of neighbor, and by allowing that, a love for God. That was the right way for Peter to go. So I want to leave you with a blessing that seems a little... Uh, jarring, maybe a little uh, uh, I don't know not so nice but I think it's the right blessing to leave you with and here it is 
May God disrupt your comfort and your certainty. May God back you into a wall and shatter all your mirrors. May you know the love of God through them. Amen. May the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. We all grab the hand of the person next to you. Let's make a big chain around this place. Now look around you. When you have those moments of the dark night of the soul, crisis of faith, these are the people that are connected to you, that will love you through anything, okay? So look to them for support, because every person in here also has those moments of crisis, okay? That's why we need to stick together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May you know that you're perfectly loved, you're completely forgiven, and you're uniquely empowered. Now you're called to go out into the world and be the hands and feet of Jesus, which is a daunting task. You're probably going to make some mistakes this week. But I need you to know that when you make those mistakes, there's nothing you can do that would change how God feels about you. Because God's love for us is not based on our performance. It's rooted in His very nature. And it is in grace and in love that he looks at us and says, Beloved, y'all are nothing but the best of the best of the best. Can you imagine how your week would be if you left here believing that? I think you'd have a pretty good week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please take that good word and go from this place in peace. Amen. Amen.